Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Jean Meserve. Welcome to Spy Talk. Glad to have you with us. I'm Jean Meserve. Jeff Stein is off on medical leave. Threats against law enforcement continue unabated, a reaction to the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago for classified documents in the possession of former President Trump. We'll talk about the impact on FBI operations and morale. Any law enforcement officer discharging their duties legally and according to policy and statute, um, you know, that needs to be respected. The rule of law needs to be respected. That was J.J. Claver, a 26-year veteran of the FBI. We'll hear much more from him later in the podcast. First, an assessment of Iran's capability to attack within the U.S. Earlier this month, the U.S. charged an Iranian military operative with plotting to assassinate John Bolton, who had been President Trump's national security advisor. And not long after that, author Salman Rushdie was stabbed on stage. More than 30 years ago, Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini had called for Rushdie's death for writing the book The Satanic Verses. We started our conversation with Colin Clark, director of research at the Sufan Group, by asking about the Rushdie attack. I think, you know, certainly there's some kind of connection or linkage to Iran, um, whether or not it was directed uh, or was more inspired or encouraged. Um, I think those details will probably come out soon. Um, But certainly the Iranians have the capability to do The same thing that the Islamic State did, which is get in touch with people remotely and either nudge them or encourage them or lay out, you know, if I were to conduct a plot, you know, really kind of lay out the bit by bit, piece by piece so that these individuals can take the risk and execute it. And the Iranians can then try to back away and say, you know, as they typically do with these proxy relationships, you know, they they like to leave a layer of ambiguity. Um, where they can say at arm's length, that wasn't us, even though it's the wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, and and look, this is, you know, whether it's Hezbollah, the Houthis, you know, Shia militia in Iraq, this is what the Iranians do. They operate via proxy. Um, and so this is a, an interesting new twist because it's a lone actor in the United States, not your typical profile of a lone actor, which is mostly Sunni jihadists, you know, operating for ISIS or you know, far-right extremists, you know, white supremacists that kind of spin out of the the far-right ecosystem. Do you think that they could mobilize just lone wolves or do they have cells in this country? You know, there was a couple of years ago when some Hezbollah operatives were arrested in New York City casing uh, different, uh, you know, I think the Brooklyn Bridge and some other things. So I've no doubt Hezbollah's got a network here in the United States. Um, The first book I wrote was on terrorism financing, published in 2015, and I spent a lot of time documenting both Hamas and Hezbollah cells, you know, some of which were here in the United States, in Charlotte and Detroit and some of these different areas. Now, those those cells were involved in like petty crime and reselling, you know, uh, trying to beat taxes on the resale of cigarettes and things like that. But, you know, those types of activities and and revenue generating 
schemes and, and frauds that adds up and it, it helps fund terrorism. So um, they're smart about the way they go at it. They, you know, the thinking is these are kind of lower on the totem pole of things that, you know, the United States government would care about. But these guys are involved in everything from, you know, counterfeit baby formula to knock off Viagra and, and it funds their organizations and it, you know, it gives them resources they need to grow their, their organizations and conduct attacks. Now, the individual allegedly responsible for the Rusty attack was wielding a knife. Um, in terms of their the other resources and, and personnel who they may have inspired or directed around the country, what's their potential to do real damage? Well, in the United States, if you're a U.S. citizen, you can buy unlimited amounts of firearm and ammunition. So I think unlike in, in many European countries, the risk here were Iran to go down that path is, is much higher just because of the ease of access of weaponry, including you know high caliber weaponry. So um, that that's a significant difference. Um, you know, there's been several other kind of plots um, that I'm sure we'll talk about. There was the Bolton plot. There was the other plot against uh, the Iranian American journalist Masi uh, Alinejad, where an individual was arrested in Brooklyn with a loaded AK-47 uh, assault rifle. And actually, as of today, there was a case apparently in Sweden, another att attempted assassination of a dissident on foreign soil. So the Swedes um, defused a bomb that was targeting Iranian dissident uh, and singer Ebi, who's openly criticized the Iranian regime. So, you know, the Iranians are growing more brazen and more cavalier, in my opinion. Uh, and I don't know how much of that is tied into the negotiations over JCPOA and how much is just business as usual for Tehran. No, I want to get to JCPOA, but first let me ask you, because this Sweden story uh, appears to target a dissenter, is this part of a broader crackdown on dissent? Certainly, the, you know, the cavalier nature of, you know, sending a, an armed individual to the, the home of um, a journalist seems to be upping the ante, right? But, you know, this is a long relationship and complicated one between the U.S. and Iran going back to the Islamic Revolution, where there was hostage taking and, you know, all sorts of other nefarious activities involved. Um, given the kind of temperature of where things stand now, I certainly think these are provocative, no, no question. But, you know, if you were to talk to an Iranian hardliner and Iranian nationalist, they would say, you know, look what you did with Qasem Soleimani. Surely this is small peanuts compared to assassinating our, our top general. I've seen some analysts suggest that these recent plots uh, targeting um, people in the U.S. may be a manifestation of a recent shakeup in the Islamic Revolutionary Guard's intelligence arm, that the new leader might be trying to prove himself. Thoughts on that? Very well could be. I mean, that's, uh, I, I, I think, you know, the RGC and, and the Quds Force have come under fire for not being able to uh, stop Israeli infiltration of Iran, uh, of, of getting at the nuclear program. Uh, there's been, if you go back to a couple of years ago when Al-Qaeda's, one of Al-Qaeda's leaders, Abu Mohammed al-Masri, was killed in Tehran, you know, now a couple of weeks after the killing of the group's Amir Ayman al-Sawahiri, there's a lot of speculation of who will lead al-Qaeda, and, and many fingers point to Saif al-Adil, who's believed to be living in Iran, but that's a major vulnerability there because you know the Israelis are able to act with impunity in that country. So a lot of that reflects poorly on the IRGC, and, and so 
the shakeup could very well be a way to kind of gain momentum and improve morale. Um, although the fact that all these plots are being disrupted and broken up is, you know, pointing in the opposite direction to me. So what is the impact of all of this likely to be on the nuclear deal? Or is it an effort to influence the nuclear deal? You know, it's hard to get into the the minds of the decision makers there. My sense is that the Iranians that are kind of signing off on this, and I think it goes up to the highest levels, they really think that this is going to pressure the U.S. government into making a deal. You know, this is kind of showing, hey, look what we could do to you if we wanted to. We could make life really difficult. But I think it also fundamentally misunderstands, you know, how this is being received among the U.S. population. I mean, this is making a lot of folks say, why would we do a deal with these guys uh, when they're not going to stop any of these extracurricular activities? And it certainly gives those that are opposed to a deal, you know, aspects of the GOP, uh, think tanks like uh, the Foundation of Defense for Democracies, which is, you know, almost its raison d'etre is is to oppose the Iranian nuclear deal, it gives them a lot of ammunition to push back and say that, you know, you'd be crazy to do this and to smear Biden um, as someone that's willing to capitulate to terrorism and, you know, a lot of the hyperbole that surrounds that. But it's it's having, I think, the opposite effect to what the Iranians think it will have. Your thoughts, if you would, on the likelihood of a deal seems pretty close. Yeah, I mean, I, I go back and forth and I follow it really closely and um, have some some you know friends and former colleagues that are extremely close to the negotiations. And uh, I don't if you you know asking me today, you know, what's today, Monday, August 22nd. Yeah, I think it's more likely than not, but things can change so quickly, um, especially with events in the region. Uh, you know, I think we're one Shia militia rocket attack against U.S. forces away from the whole deal being scuttled. So and that gets into the whole nature of command and control. To what extent are the Iranians calling the shots on some of these attacks? You know, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think it depends on the group. Right. I mean, some groups are a bit more autonomous than others. Um, but at the same time, something this sensitive around such an important deal it would be hard for me to believe that these groups would be going rogue and risk everything that the, the Iranians have been negotiating over uh, off and on for uh, for the past several years. Is it hard to overestimate the impact the death of Soleimani had and is having? I, I think, you know, I've gone back and forth on this, too. Um, initially, I was very wary of the strike and thought it was unnecessarily provocative. Um, but at the same time, if you look at how much blood and including American blood Suleimani has on his hands, you know, I've, I've been more amenable or more open to the argument of if somebody is that capable and irreplaceable, then doesn't it make sense to go after him? Um, and I think, you know, we haven't seen him replaced with someone of the same echelon. Uh, and, and in that sense, you know, I'm kind of sitting in the camp now of maybe it was overall a net net positive. But it may be motivating some of these attacks that we're seeing now or plots. Yeah, very well. They very well could be because, you know, the Iranians have a long memory. They're not going to you know, take something like that lightly. Uh, and I think, you know, they're patient. We know that. Uh, and they will seek to even the score, although I don't think, you know, they're ever going to be able to do something equivalent. 
um, certainly all these plots are are suggesting that they're trying. Iran recently launched a spy satellite with Russian help. There are reports that they're selling drones to Russia for the war in Ukraine. I'm wondering if you see any nexus there to the plots. I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, I try to be very cautious in not seeing a Russian boogeyman behind every stone. Although, I, you know, we know that they're responsible for stoking a lot of far-right extremism in Europe and elsewhere, not only at the political level, but also kind of more at the you know, foot soldier level of, uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't put anything past the Russians, but this seems more organically Iranian to me, uh, even as that relationship continues to grow closer. How should the U.S. be responding to the actions Iran has been taking? I think, you know, a very clear uh, and unambiguous warning that we won't tolerate this and there'll be serious consequences if Iran goes through with, with one of these attacks, especially on U.S. soil, um, just making that crystal clear that we we won't abet, uh, we won't allow this to, to go forward. Are words enough? President Biden has said those words, and yet his critics say you should be more forceful. Yeah, I mean, again, that kind of risks getting into the tit-for-tat, you know, unending cycle uh, that I think we're trying to avoid. Kudos and major credit to, you know, the intelligence agencies for unraveling these plots. Um, you know, I disagree with John Bolton on on many things, but to to go after a former ambassador and someone of, you know, Bolton's background, that's a serious, serious plot. Um, and, and it does make me think that it's revenge for Suleimani. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't advocate going beyond that presently, because I think then we almost guarantee, you know, this kind of tit for tat violence and, you know, a major U.S. strike against the Iranians could very well, you know, be the the straw that breaks the camel's back, especially if we are getting closer to uh, an agreement, because, you know, the, the the implications of an Iranian nuclear weapon are disastrous, not only for the United States, but for the region. It risks, uh, you know, a regional war uh, with the Israelis and uh, an arms race, you know, with countries like Saudi Arabia and the UAE that aren't going to sit by as the Iranians develop a weapon. Do you have any forecasts for what the U.S.-Iranian relationship might look like in six months, year, two years? I, I don't see it looking all too different than it looks now. I mean, I've described it before as a state of durable disorder, um, you know, just kind of limping along without ever fully destroying itself. So, um, credit to the Biden administration for being patient. But at the same time, that patience is going to run out if the Iranians, you know, keep, uh, I'm often reminded of Lucy pulling the football from Charlie Brown. Every time you think you're going to get close, you know, they move the goalposts and now it's about this and now it's about that. And they're not going to stop their extracurricular activities in the region. That's their foreign policy. So I think we also need to be realistic about what the expectations are and what's actually on the table. Hard to imagine a worse relationship than we've had with Iran. It, it is, but, you know, we've avoided war for the most part, at least all out conventional military war. We've been fighting in the shadows for quite some time, cyber and other means, covert operations. Um, but that's far more preferable to to the other alternative. That was Colin Clark, director of research at the Sufan Group. In just a moment, are threats against the FBI impacting the agency's ability to do its work?
We have never seen anything like it. A torrent of threats against the FBI, coming not just from anonymous people online, but from elected officials and a former president of the United States. There are calls to shoot agents and their families, accusations that the FBI is the equivalent of the Gestapo, and suggestions that the FBI should be abolished. J.J. Claver served for 26 years with the FBI, where he eventually became a supervisory special agent with the Philadelphia Division. I asked him for his reaction. Well, I mean, obviously, great concern. You know, law enforcement at all levels, you know, needs to be held to account when or if there is misconduct. Um, However, any law enforcement officer discharging their duties legally and according to policy and statute, you know, that needs to be respected. The rule of law needs to be respected to suggest that broadly any organization, any investigative agency is politically motivated in its investigations, I just think is irresponsible and dangerous. And it's putting people's lives at risk. Um, There are real world consequences to saying these kinds of things publicly. Does it make you mad? Um, I'm not sure if mad is the right word. Um, I'm disappointed um, at where our kind of public and political discourse has come. You know, as someone who is a lifelong registered independent, I found my original voter registration card from New Orleans. Uh, When I turned 18, I was registered as independent. I've always been that way. I have a hard time kind of wrapping my head around such vitriolic partisanship. How how worried are agents, especially after some of them have actually been doxxed? Well, I think, you know, uh, law enforcement officers in general, particularly the FBI, uh, always kind of have an eye towards the threats that could be out there. Um, you know, particularly agents working in certain roles always have to be careful Um, Are they being targeted by foreign intelligence services? Are they being targeted by organized crime groups or uh, gangs, you know, depending on what kinds of cases they're working in any given time? You know, so I think there's always kind of this sense of um, being aware of your own security, of your family's security. Um, But I think this has taken it to a new level when they're, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, Individual offices have been targeted. You know, most uh, FBI offices probably have pretty good physical security for the office, but, you know, employees, not just agents, but the support employees, uh, people are coming and going. Uh, Many FBI field divisions are located in federal buildings, which also house other federal agencies, the IRS, uh, bankruptcy court, um, U.S. district courts. So, you know, you have members of the public coming and going, you know, and as we saw in Oklahoma and certain federal buildings, there are uh, daycare centers often uh, on the first floor, you know, so, you know, it's not just the FBI that's uh, being threatened here. It's the public. Do you think that these threats are impacting the Department of Justice's day-to-day work? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, I think FBI employees are going to go about their work. It's a very mission-driven agency. Um, Everybody recognizes what both the overall mission is and what their individual piece of that is. Um, And people pretty much stay focused on getting 
you know, doing what needs to be done to achieve the goals. So in Sunday's Washington Post, there was a headline, Ray avoids fight as FBI is menaced. Your thought on the FBI director's performance? Well, I mean, I think, you know, the FBI director position is intended by statute to be somewhat separate from the political process and from a political appointments uh, that occur normally in any change of administration. But his personnel are being attacked, literally and figuratively. Yes. I mean, I think it is, I, I don't want to necessarily second guess everything he's done, um, but I think it benefits the FBI as an organization and in the bigger picture for the director to remain out of public political discourse and public political arguments. I think that's better left uh, to other people within the Department of Justice or within uh, any presidential president's administration. Uh, you know, I think he's probably looking at it. He's always been somewhat publicly apolitical. I mean, we know his political leanings just from his prior history. Um, but I think Republican, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, appointed by a Republican president. So I think I, I would guess that what he's doing is trying to remain as apolitical as possible. I mean, obviously he is the face of the FBI publicly. You know, I think he's going to try to remain at least publicly as politically neutral as possible on this. And I think that benefits the FBI. Um, I mean, I think we've seen in recent past where that maybe was not adhered to as a, as a policy by an FBI director. And it, it uh, you has... might be referring to Mr. Comey. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a very difficult and, and uh, you know, treacherous line to tread when you're speaking publicly about any ongoing investigation, and it's something that through the FBI's history they really haven't done. Um, you know, typically, the standard answer in any ongoing investigation is no comment. We neither confirm nor deny the existence of an investigation. I'm sure you've been told that many, many a times. Time. <laughs> I'm sure you've said it many a time. I have. Uh, not always in those words. I try and, you know, be a little more polite about it. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, there really is no reason to talk publicly about an ongoing investigation that could lead to speculation or tarnish someone's reputation unnecessarily before they're charged or convicted of any crime. Um, you know, so. Th but there I'm, is... not, I'm not talking about him talking about the investigation. I'm talking about. We're talking about him speaking up in defense of his employees who are being attacked. Yeah. I mean, he has obviously addressed it internally and, um, you know, in, uh, you know, documents that we have seen released publicly. Um, I don't know necessarily that getting in front of a press conference and decrying you know, individual threats, the individual threats are going to be investigated. They're going to be handled um, by the FBI, by other law enforcement agencies. And I think letting the investigative process and the judicial process speak for those threats uh, is better. He's come out, obviously, and, and you know, publicly said to, to the FBI employees 
um, you know, we're not going to tolerate these threats and they're going to be investigated. So let's talk about the investigation for a minute. So many of these threats are being posted online. Does that make it easier or harder to investigate the threats? The FBI, in some respects, is limited into uh, the monitoring of social media broadly, um, you know, to protect people's rights to express opinions. Um, But anytime there's an overt threat made, obviously that, you know, now you've committed a criminal act um, on, on multiple levels. So, you know, if you're threatening the FBI, you know, you've got state laws violated, you've got federal laws violated. Um, I, I know what you're getting you at, which know, is- But how do you know if they've made the overt threat? I mean, if you don't have the capacity to just scan social media, to look at Gab, for instance, on a regular basis, how do you know the threat's been made? All right. Well, in some ways you're relying on uh, people to report that threat. Um, you know, the, the if you see something, say something. If you hear something, say something. Um, you know, people to make that threat public you know, or report it to a law enforcement agency, but they might. But they might not if they're of similar mind. Right. You know, on some of these platforms, people are, there's groupthink going on. It is a challenge. Uh, and again, that that constitutional line between free speech and threatening speech can be a very delicate line. And, uh, you know, one of the things, you know, in, in for example, in, in my career working civil rights investigations, you know, one of the kind of guiding tenets is we can't enforce civil rights laws by violating civil rights. Um, you know, so you do have to be very careful that we're not treading on people's constitutionally protected rights of expression and speech. And and that's hard to do, isn't it? It is very, it is very hard to do. And that, you know, really came into focus post 9-11. Um, you know, when the the intelligence half of the FBI was was really getting more attention and and was 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 being strengthened. Uh, you know, keep in mind the FBI is the only agency in the US government that is both a law enforcement agency and an intelligence agency. There's obviously lots of intelligence agencies and lots of law enforcement agencies. The FBI is the only organization that is both. Um and it it poses specific challenges because you have a law, you know, the, the criminal law enforcement investigative side of the FBI and then the intelligence side. And they do, there are different rules that apply, um, you know, in criminal investigations, uh, we have to be very careful. And there are strict rules in place about monitoring social media before there. Now, if there is an investigation, a predicated investigation opened, it brings a lot more investigative tools to bear. But if there is not an open investigation yet, you know, it becomes a little more difficult to collect information, even that's publicly available because of restrictions on how that information can be collected and used. If there is this threat landscape right now, um, you know, there can be multiple investigations that are going to give the FBI the opportunity to use more of these tools to collect information. Additionally, you know, there are other intelligence agencies that probably are monitoring social media a little more aggressively than the FBI would on the criminal side of things. So, you know, I, there who would could those be, be. Who would those agencies be? 
Well, I mean, there are other intelligence agencies within the U.S. government. That, oh, yeah, but some of them can't collect intelligence within the United States. Right, not within the borders of the United States. But, you know, I think there there could be opportunities to collect uh, intelligence of a, if there's a domestic terrorism or even an international terrorism element to the threats that are being made. I mean, obviously, if someone is threatening destruction of a federal building, that brings it into the realm of of a counterterrorism investigation. You know, and I, I do think, like I said, under this kind of threat environment that we're in, there's there's probably multiple investigations open now into various threats. And that does give the FBI the opportunity to more aggressively look for additional threats online. How does the FBI or any other agency who's looking into this distinguish between what's an actual threat and what's just big talk? Is there any method? Well, there is not a single method. I mean, it's obviously, again, that's that's a big challenge. If someone is making you know, a, a written or verbal threat through something that's posted on social media, you know, you have to look at it does the person have the means? Uh, do you know? Do they have the ability to carry out these threats? Um, do they have access to you know? If someone is threatening to blow something up. You know, is it likely that they have the ability to obtain or create explosives and and deploy them? But it's uh, it, so easy, for instance, to get a gun or a nail gun, like the guy who staged the attack in in Ohio. Yeah. Uh, I mean, obviously, the yeah, the accessibility of weapons in this country, um, you know, th- there really is no limit to the we- to people getting weapons and using those weapons, as we've seen. Um, so it becomes obviously a very difficult endeavor to determine if a threat is real or not, and that's why all threats are taken so seriously and are going to be investigated. You know, it's easy to determine. Um, you know, if someone has access to weapons, um, you know, as the investigation progresses um, and to figure Although out. Although this guy in Ohio, just as an example, had been looked at. Yeah. And he obviously found the means to stage an attack. Yeah, it it is a real challenge. I mean, there are, uh, you know, even if someone has weapons and a law enforcement agency can get those weapons away from that person because they've made threats or they've you know, committed acts of violence, they can obtain additional weapons. I mean, it's, again, there's no, there's no shortage of ways to get your hands on deadly force weapons in this country. So it is a challenge. Bottom bottom line, it sounds extremely challenging. One, you can't monitor all of these social media channels. Um, You're relying on someone else to report to you that a threat has been made. Then you have to do the investigation which can be extraordinarily difficult, and there have to be a lot of them going on, right? Yes, I, I would uh, think. You know, in addition to obviously all of the other work that you have to do investigating other kinds of cases, yeah, right. Yeah, you know, other other counterterrorism investigations and other threats of violence cases. President Trump. Um, has characterized the search of Mar-a-Lago as a sneak attack. He's accused the FBI of planting evidence. Last week, he posted that law enforcement has become that of a third world nation. 
quoting him here, never in our country's history has there been a time where law enforcement has been so viciously and violently involved in the life and times of politics and our nation. They have no shame. They are destroying our country. Would you like to give a response to that? Look, he, like any citizen, former president or not, is entitled to his opinion. He is a private citizen now. Um, He has um, avenues. Obviously, he has a large audience. Um, You know, as a as a former president, he has a larger audience than an average person. But he's entitled to his opinion. That's what makes this country great. But are you stunned to hear a former president and lawmakers making threats against the FBI, characterizing it as the Gestapo? Yeah, I mean, it is uh, stunning on its face. Um, it is, um, uh, you know, it's it's disappointing. It's uh, bewildering um, to hear people, uh, again, maligning an entire organization. Um, you, Anyone is entitled to their opinion about individual actions, individual activities, disagree with the investigation, but to you know, characterize an entire organization as some politically motivated, you know, thug organization. It's just, it's both inappropriate and dangerous. Um, I mean. Do you find some irony in this that the FBI, which has a pretty conservative heritage, should be portrayed as this tool of the liberal elite? Well, look, it's being it's those claims are being made for political purposes, primarily, or to divert attention from the actual investigation. Um, you know, if you know, it, it's not a simple process in this country to get a search warrant signed by a federal judge. Um, you know, there's a lot that goes a lot of investigation that goes into it. A search warrant is not the beginning of an investigation. It's not a tool that's used early in an investigation. Um, there's a lot that that goes into it to work up to the point of being ready to draft an affidavit to take to a judge uh, to get a search warrant signed. Um, so, you know, I'm going to maintain faith in the organization and the safeguards that exist in our legal system that this investigation up to this point has been justified in everything that's been done. No one's been charged with anything yet. So we're going to stick with the, you know, innocent until proven guilty. Um, that's the right everybody has. Republicans, Republicans, some Republicans are threatening that if they take control of Congress, there are going to be hearings into the FBI. Does that worry you? Um, well, I think it's will be more of a distraction than anything. I mean, there have been Won't hearings. Will it be disruptive to the FBI potentially? Well, look, there have been hearings about FBI activities over the decades. As charged as before. this? Uh, probably not as politically charged as this, but you know, I think the FBI is going to be able to withstand any scrutiny of this activity. And if it's found that any FBI employee acted inappropriately, you know, there are investigative processes in place, both through the FBI and the inspectors general um, through that process, then I would expect that there'll be investigations and agents can be charged with crimes if they lied on an affidavit. 
Um, but again, there's no indication that any of that has occurred yet. But you don't think there are Republicans in Congress or candidates for Congress as well who said defund the FBI, get rid of this agency. Well, I, I don't think that's a reality. I don't think that's realistic. I mean, the role that the FBI plays in domestic and international law enforcement um, and in the intelligence community and in protecting this country, I, I don't think that's realistic and I don't think that's going to happen. I mean, that's probably makes for a good tagline right now. Um, any more than, you know, calls for, quote, defund the police have resulted in any major changes in how state, local, federal budgets are being spent. I think the FBI would withstand scrutiny um, if a Republican Congress and or Senate wants to hold hearings into what led up to the execution of the search warrant. Based on what I've seen and what I've read and my experience, I, I think the FBI would withstand scrutiny. That was J.J. Claver, who worked at the FBI for 26 years. Claver told me he expects threats against the FBI, other law enforcement, and the judiciary will increase between now and the midterm elections and could escalate even further before the presidential election in 2024. Thanks for joining us for Spy Talk. Remember to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack for original and insightful reporting on national security and intelligence. Follow my co-host Jeff Stein on Twitter at SpyTalker and follow me too. I'm at Jean Meserve. Glad you were here. Tune in again next week. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.